This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. For my uh, the launch of my 15th year on uh, Federal News Radio. I'm bringing in my uh, my old friend, somebody who's been on the show since my first year on FNN, back then, and FNR, uh, Larry Allen. Larry, welcome back to the show. Mark, thanks very much. It's great to be back, and happy anniversary. So Larry and I are going to be discussing, uh, I'll just call it a hodgepodge of, of topics largely around the change of administration, but what's coming down in 2021. Um, And let's start, Larry, with uh, this new uh, rocket ship, uh, uh, GWAC Polaris. (laughs) Mark, this is uh, GSA's Polaris contract vehicle. Many people view it, I think, for ease of uh, identification as a follow-on to the failed Alliant 2 small business. I'm not sure if that's entirely accurate, but it certainly is going to be the next GSA small business uh, IDIQ for information technology solutions. There are several interesting things your listeners should know about uh, Polaris as it stands right now. Uh, One is that Uh, There's going to be specific categories set aside for women-owned businesses and for hub-zone businesses. Uh, GSA had contemplated setting aside the entire Polaris contract for those two uh, classifications, but they decided to put together pools, a pool for women-owned businesses and a pool for hub-zone businesses, uh, the feeling that GSA runs an 8A program for STARS, uh, and it runs uh, VETS GWAC. So they want to make sure that they are giving all different uh, small business socioeconomic categories a place to play. The other categories on Polaris Mark will be for small businesses, but it will be small businesses of any stripe. Uh, The other thing that your listeners probably want to know is that GSA is planning to have this be a non-priced contract. The agency has specific authority that was given to it a couple of years ago by Congress to essentially negotiate terms and conditions at the contract level, but to leave pricing to be negotiated between the contractor and the customer at the time an an actual task order is cut. This is going to be kind of an interesting uh, part of Polaris, Mark. On paper, it looks pretty good, and it's something that industry has wanted. And as far as contract formation goes, it should reduce the lead time necessary for GSA to get Polaris awarded. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how customer agencies react when they realize they have to do some price vetting 
I'm in really in favor of testing this uh, this capacity, really in, in favor of the general idea. But the real test is going to be uh, when the customers look at it and that they have confidence in the work that GSA did to actually uh, vet the contractors uh, and the solutions uh, that are available through the contract. So uh, right now we're in this period where the comment on the draft RFP just closed and GSA is reviewing the comments it got back. Uh, they're hoping to come out with a, a final RFP sometime later in this calendar year and actually have awards mark at the beginning of 2022. Cool. Now, when you mention a category for uh, uh, smalls of any stripe, are we talking uh, just any company dis uh, that fits the SBA definition for small? Well, it's going to be, uh, they're going to be at least three parts of the contract that are open to general small businesses, Mark. But like many of the contracts we're seeing today, there's going to have to be a self-scoring calculator. And that self-scoring calculator is meant to be kind of a discriminator uh, for businesses that are new versus businesses that have been around for a while or even businesses that can team with other small businesses and come up with a, a teaming proposal for Polaris. Uh, so it's not going to be something where, hey, you know, I just started out two years ago or even a year ago as a small business. This is a great GSA IT opportunity for me. I want to go after it. No, you're going to have to prove that you're capable of doing the work and you're going to have to show that uh, you have federal customers or other customers that are in the public sector that have bought from you uh, or your team members. It's a point system mark, similar to the one that GSA used on Oasis, similar to the one that NIH is now using on its big GWAC contract. So uh, you're going to be a small business, but it's not. It's going to be a steeper hill to climb if you're a newer small business. Okay, but still, we haven't seen a GWAC really with specific slots for non-set-aside smalls, right? Right. Oh, right. This is, uh, you know, Alliant uh, SB was the small business companion contract to Alliant. So this is supposed to be the, uh, it's not a companion to Alliant anymore. It's going to be its own contract, but yes. This is a small business contract vehicle. Okay. Uh, products and services, just services? Products and services and more solutions. So not products really, Mark, as standalone. It's going to be more solutions, services, network management, that type of thing, uh, creation, uh, soft, a little bit of software work in there. Uh, it will look remarkably in scope like uh, the current Alliant contract. Cool. So prognosis for success. Looking at my crystal ball, Mark, I see two basic ways that Polaris could go. One is that the agency will be able to get the contract in place quickly. Uh, speed, moving at the speed of need is important now. There are a lot of people who are upset, both contractors and buyers, that 
Uh, Alliance Small Business 2 never made it off the launch pad. Not like everybody's waiting uh, for the new one, but there will be some demand for it. Uh, so from that perspective, GSA has done its market research. It's talked to potential customers. There should be business that would go through Polaris. We're going to have to see the wild card is going to be the non-priced quality of this contract. Just how easy will it be for contractors and federal agencies to arrive at fair and reasonable pricing at the task order level and how comfortable are agencies going to be in doing that uh, when GSA vetted only on the technical qualifications. I certainly hope that Polaris will be uh, successful. Boy, following right on the heels of it will be the uh, replacement for Oasis, the large services vehicle that I think is going to use the same type of non-priced mechanism. So it better be successful in Polaris or uh, Oasis follow-on is going to have to go back to the drawing board. Will it be Oasis 2? I don't think it's going to be called Oasis 2, Mark. GSA kind of has a working title for it, but we don't have any formal acronym. Okay. So maybe we can come up with something really cool. <laughs> uh, That's a, that we could spend an entire show talking about what might happen with Oasis. All right. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Uh, Larry Allen can be found on LinkedIn or at allenfederal.com. That's Allen, A-L-L-E-N, federal.com. And Larry and I will return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with Larry Allen of Allen Federal, and we're discussing a number of things uh, just coming down the pike. And right now we're going to talk about uh, new rules the next administration may impose on uh, small businesses. Uh, So, Larry, take it. Well, Mark, I think right now we're still only about a month a little less than a month into the new administration. So all the details aren't out yet, but there are a couple of things I think we can point to already that this new administration is going to impose on contractors. And the bottom line for contractors is, look, the regulatory framework that you've done business in over the last four years is not going to exist anymore. You're going to have a new regulatory framework. And there are some pluses and minuses depending on what type of business you are. If you're a service company, for example, you better be prepared to have your Service Contract Act compliance uh, all tied up and neatened up. Department of Labor under the Biden administration has been very clear already that Service Contract Act uh, enforcement is gonna be something that they take very seriously. They're going to be looking at prevailing wages Uh, Similarly, if you're a construction contractor, that's going to be Davis-Bacon, whereas the previous administration may have not been as aggressive. This administration, I think, is going to be much more so on wage and labor hour determination. So if you're covered by Davis-Bacon or Service Contract Act, this is your alert to make sure you've got your house in order. Uh, The other thing is if you're a small business and contract bundling is still something that is causing you pain in the federal space, 
the Biden administration, uh, I think, Mark, is inclined to help you out. Uh, there's been some discussion about having anti-bundling uh, rules come out, uh, an anti-bundling executive order potentially that would further strengthen laws that are already on the books uh, to give small businesses a fair shot uh, at competing for different types of federal projects. I wouldn't be surprised, Mark, to see this administration push for an increase in the small business set-aside goals. Currently, the overall goal is 23%. It's a goal that, hey, you can carp about the numbers, but technically the numbers that we have show that the federal government as a whole has met the goal for the last several years. Anytime you meet your goal for the last couple of years, what happens? you get a new goal. So the other thing I want to talk about is overall contract compliance. I know a lot, a lot of companies uh, spend a lot of time on compliance, but you really should. I've been talking to some of my friends in the public contract bar, Mark. They pointed out to me that under the last couple of years of the Trump administration, uh, federal contract compliance recoveries, the amount of money that the government recovers uh, in fraud cases was about half of what it had been under the Obama administration. That's the difference of about $2 billion overall, Mark. We're going to see the Biden Justice Department reignite the False Claims Act. We're going to see them be more aggressive in contract compliance. And if IGs know that their big brothers at the Department of Justice Civil Division are going to be more aggressive. That in turn may spur them to be more aggressive on things like post-award audits. So if you're a contractor of any stripe, small or large, and you're doing any type of significant government business, the public contract bar is saying that you can expect the Department of Justice to go back to uh, seeking recoveries more in line with what they did under the Obama administration. Again, that could potentially be $2 billion or even more uh, than we've seen over the last couple of years. Uh, that $2 billion is going to have to come from somewhere. Make sure it doesn't come from you. That's particularly, <laughs> it's particularly the case if you're a, a contractor that does business with HHS or the VA. But even if you're not one of those contractors, uh, anybody who's heard me talk knows I'm a big believer that contract compliance is the ounce of prevention, much, much less expensive than the pound of cure. Okay. Um, I seem to recall that under the Obama administration that a lot of the audits were um, pushing the boundaries, I, I wanna say of acceptability, but I mean, they they were really nitpicking, and and those most impacted were smaller companies, not larger companies. Do you remember that? Am I remembering that right, Mark? You are remembering that correctly. There's no question that anytime you've got uh, auditors uh, who want to get some acknowledgement, want to get some career advancement, want to make be seen that they're doing their job they'll come up with new theories on what constitutes fraud. And we certainly have seen an evolution in the theories of what contractors uh, do and how it, those actions are viewed by auditors. The easiest way to explain it is that 
there really isn't very much, if any, belief that contractors would make an accident. <laughs> so uh, it's more that if you make an accident, it would be looked upon as uh, proof that you're reckless or you're not paying proper attention. So there's very little margin for error if you're a contractor. You have to keep in mind if you're in the industry side of things, Mark, that the people who are auditing your, auditing your contract have a very different perspective than you do. The assumption is that you probably have done something wrong and that's why you see new theories developed to fit that, uh, fit that idea. So uh, you, as a, uh, and it can happen if you're a small business, any type of company that has significant business, what are we talking about as significant? Well, that's, that's uh, definitional as well. It depends on the market segment in your, you're in. It doesn't have to be $50 million a year. Uh, it could be uh, much smaller than that. So uh, you really have to make sure that uh, you've got uh, an eye on that compliance bottom line. Okay. Yeah. And uh, for, for smaller companies out there, is that an area where you can help? Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, Allen Federal does a lot of contract compliance help. Uh, I assure you, we are much less expensive than a False Claims Act recovery. <laughs> um, you know, the other thing that I tell people, Mark, is look, you know, a lot of federal contractors want to take their clients out to the Palm for dinner. That, of course, runs foul of ethics laws. If you really feel compelled to take someone out to the Palm for a steak dinner, Allen Federal is always available. Uh, we like ours medium rare, and there's no ethics problem involved in that. True. So I, um, before our next break, we have a couple of minutes here. Let's start talking about uh, the rise of OTA, particularly uh, uh, during uh, COVID. Um, it seemed to explode. Um, what's going on there? Mark, you're right. Uh, the use of other transaction authority or OTAs has really significantly grown. And a lot of it was spurred by the pandemic. Uh, but regardless of the cause, I mean, OTAs certainly fit the need, the ability to move quickly when speed was of utmost importance. But taking it a step further, Mark, one of the things that's kind of interested me about the OTA phenomena is originally OTAs, other transaction authority, were supposed to be for things that were not in, were pre-production. There were new, new solutions that were being created. Uh, prototypes, if you will. And now we're increasingly seeing OTA authority being used for first run production authority. So people are actually going operational with new solutions, still using the OTA acquisition model. Uh, that's great as far as it goes because it enables uh, federal users to get solutions faster. And if they're things that are either COVID related or their frontline national security related. That's why OTA authority was created in the first place to be able to fill that need that the traditional acquisition system can't meet because it can't move fast enough. But when you start getting into actual operational production runs of things, inevitably we're gonna get the oversight community. Uh, in this case, I think it will probably be Congress 
because uh, uh, that starts to ask questions, particularly armed services committees, because a lot of the OTA work is being done in the Department of Defense. Uh, but if you're a small business uh, and you're looking for new solutions, you've got a real new solution, you're not necessarily selling something that's commercial off the shelf, uh, OTAs are definitely uh, a way to look at business, Mark, and it's something that if you're a, one of those smaller companies you haven't looked at, you really should do it now. Yeah, but a few years ago, I seem to recall when the OTAs went operational, other companies protested. Has that gone away or is that still there? We haven't seen that so much with pandemic-related OTA production use because I think there's an understanding, hey, we've got an emergency, we've got a crisis, we want to make sure that uh, we're not getting stuck on uh, technicalities. On the other hand, that's only going to last for so long, uh, Mark. We're going to have uh, other companies who develop their own solutions that compete with some of the ones that were developed under an OTA, maybe something that was done under an SBIR, for example, uh, competing government programs to, to come up with new solutions. Uh, I, I, I think also that when you get into this, uh, wherever there's lots and lots of money and things are moving outside of the regulations, which again is the intent of OTAs, uh, at some point somebody's gonna cut a corner that shouldn't have been cut and then you're gonna get a lot of oversight. Uh, so uh, you have to be careful. This is a very useful tool. We want to have it. There's a reason Congress gave it to agencies. Uh, we just have to be smart about how we use it. Okay, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll be back with Larry right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with my friend uh, and semi-regular guest, Larry Allen. Larry was one of my first guests uh, over 14 years ago now, or about 14 years ago. Um, time flies, man. Um, but but it seems like, you know, we end up talking about the same kinds of things. So, um, you know, there's always some new requirements, some new regulation. And CMMC, which was kind of spawned out of uh, NIST regulations, has morphed. And uh, um, so the, the self-certification was due in January. Uh, what about the, uh, uh, we were talking before, the Section 889B? Right. So these two issues together, Mark, CMMC, Cybersecurity Model Maturity Certification, and Section 889B are ones that despite uh, people having talked about them both for a year or more now, a lot of contractors either aren't hearing the message or don't want to hear the message. But let's be clear, <laughs> if you're a government contractor and you want to sell to the Department of Defense, even as a subcontractor, then you have to have your CMMC certification down. You at least have to have uh, level one. There are some exclusions, Mark, for people who are strictly selling commercial off-the-shelf solutions. So you have an exemption from CMMC uh, if you're selling commercial off-the-shelf stuff. But what's interesting to me is I've talked to a number of small businesses who said, you know, Larry, the more we talk about this, 
we really can't say that we're selling COTS solutions all the time. We think we ought to be at least level one certified. And I tend to think companies I've talked to are right. And of course, there are uh, at least five different levels of CMMC certification, level one being the lowest. Uh, and it doesn't take a lot if you're a company really much larger than Allen Federal, you probably have the systems in place to be able to show whether or not you meet the security protocols, the things that are required. Uh, they're not hugely burdensome until you get up to level three or four. Level three is kind of the minimum level you need to be a prime contractor. Uh, but you do need to be able to show that you meet them. And uh, again, we talked in the last segment about the, the law community. This is something that my law friends tell me they expect a lot of whistleblower activity on. Uh, so uh, I would recommend that if any company that's doing business today with DOD or is doing business with a civilian agency tomorrow because CMMC is coming soon to a space near you, uh, that you check out what the requirements are and make sure that you've got a plan for how you're gonna meet it. Uh, the sister part of that that we talk about is Section 889B. This is the uh, provision mark that prevents companies from doing business with the government if they are using any one of a host of covered technologies. These are Chinese IT and telecom. This is the type of stuff that isn't going to go away just because we've changed administrations. Uh, 889B, as its name infers, is a law, so Congress would have to alter the law uh, to change it. Uh, whether they do that during this session uh, is uncertain, but they certainly aren't going to do it anytime soon because the, the law that they would amend is the defense authorization bill. That never really passes until the fall. Uh, so, you know, 889B is something... If you are selling to the government, you have to make sure you don't have any Huawei, you don't have to make sure you don't have any other Chinese covered telecom, not just in the operations that support your government contracts, but in any of your company's uh, uh, facilities, Mark. That and that brings into line, there are a whole bunch of questions. We, you know, we don't need to go into all of them here in depth, but you know, what does all that mean for people on bring your own device and work at home? Interesting questions. Um, there are a lot of lawyers that I talk to who are like, well, you know, we'd probably feel a lot more comfortable if your employee didn't use a Huawei phone while working at home uh, if you're a government contractor. So it does get down potentially to that level of granularity. Uh, again, not new that we've talked about it, but a lot of people don't seem to get the word. On top of both of those issues, though, Mark, you started off the segment, I think, framing the issue really, really well. And that is, we've talked about some of these things over the years. Government contracting is cyclical. We're in a cycle right now where I think contractors can expect to see more rules and regulations. Look, during the first segment of this show, we talked about some of the new rules that the Biden administration is going to likely place on contractors. Those are rules, Mark, that are gonna be over and above things like CMMC and Section 889. And those are just things that the administration's gonna put on you. Uh, we have yet to see what goodies Congress might have in store 
during uh, the rest of this fiscal year uh, for next year that might add to contractors' uh, burdens. And it does have a real impact. A lot of companies that pay attention, small businesses especially, to the rules and regulations that are coming out of government, a number of small businesses, Mark, have elected to leave the federal market rather than try to comply with things that they know are going to be more costly for them than they're worth. Uh, so are people paying attention to it? Well, yeah, they are. So if somebody comes knocking on your door, you can't willfully plead ignorance. It's not going to go very far. You have to make the decision uh, of what these requirements mean for your company. What are the costs relative to uh, the time, amount of business you're going to get in the federal market? Uh, and if it's going to be costly, how do you modify your business plan to play in this market or maybe go play in the state government sandbox for a while? Uh, so I, I, it's not, it's CMMC and Section 89, but it's it, those two things, contract bundling, increased compliance, uh, increased service contract and Davis-Bacon it's going to, and those are just the things that are in the, the proverbial tip of the iceberg. We're working in a government contract client climate right now, Mark, uh, where there are going to be more rules and regulations put on industry. Yeah, it doesn't stop. Uh, I wanted to pick up GSA schedules on this segment, but um, I want to give it its full due because the consolidation is uh, it's rolling ahead, uh, but we'll, we'll pick that up on the other side. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Larry and I will wrap up right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with my friend and frequent guest, Larry Allen of Allen Federal. Uh, we are celebrating the beginning of my 15th year on Federal News Radio. There'll be cake later, Larry. Um, I like the party hats. That was a there nice you go. Time. Yeah, yeah. Party favors coming, dude. Um, so um, we save this to last, but it's not a, a, a back burner issue by any stretch. So talk about the GSA schedule consolidation, but then I want to take a deeper dive into one aspect of it. Sure. So where we are in schedule consolidation, Mark, we're in phase three, uh, where GSA has now, you talked earlier about the requirement to update uh, catalogs in January for one of the other government programs. All schedule contractors have to update their catalogs by now. If you're listening to us in February, you're too late. You're supposed to have updated your catalog in January. Uh, so make sure that you've done that. If you hadn't, that's all your pricing information. All of your GSA Advantage listings have to be updated, should be updated by now. Uh, so uh, that's something that all contractors have to, to be aware of. Overall, Mark, where we are in schedules consolidation is GSA is working to uh, consolidate contracts for companies that hold more than one schedule. Uh, so if you're a GSA schedule contract holder that you've had you know, three different contracts, an IT contract, a services contract, and one for multifunction devices, now all of those contracts are going to be consolidated into one uh, contract with uh, a uniform set of terms and conditions. 
What's interesting to me about this is that uh, so far it's going along with very few complaints, this part of it anyway, but GSA also, Mark, is being flexible. If you've got a good relationship with a contracting officer that runs one of those contracts, you might get a chance to stay with that contracting officer, even if the contract itself doesn't represent the most amount of business you do. In other words, your contract isn't always going to be consolidated so that you end up with your, let's say, IT contracting officer simply because your IT schedule has historically done more business than any of your other schedules. GSA wants to preserve those relationships. Frankly, they also want to even out the workload because it would often be the case that just based on sales, everyone's IT contract would be the largest. So if you've got a case to stay with the contracting officer, and your contracting officer likes working with you, let me tell you, my 30 plus years of experience, that's a good relationship to preserve. <laughs> uh, not everybody is so lucky to have that type of good relationship with their COs. Uh, so if you're going through consolidation, see what you can do to maintain that. Uh, but also if you're one of those contractors, realize that you, know, you are gonna have a set of terms and conditions that govern all of your contracts and it's going to be increasingly incumbent upon you to make sure that your federal buyer can find you regardless of what component of that consolidated contract they want to use. Okay, but that, that kind of leads to the, uh, the wart scenario. Um, and that is that uh, uh, a while back, the IG came through uh, or, or from from high above filtered down the message that uh, that that pricing may be a little loosey goosey. I don't personally think that's an accurate assessment, but there's been a lot of fallout as a result. Mark, there has been a lot of fallout. And what's ironic to me about this is GSA has done such an excellent job of communicating with industry on schedule consolidation. They were out early talking to industry. They've been consistent throughout the entire process. They've really done a, a nice job of, of working with industry, keeping people informed. Is everybody entirely happy? No, it's a big program. But has GSA done the best they could, I think, on that front to manage it? Absolutely. In contrast, the agency hasn't really come out and said a word to industry uh, as a whole about this new move to drive down pricing, even for companies that already have scheduled contracts where a contracting officer has already made a determination that the existing price is fair and reasonable. So if you're going in for a contract modification or an extension mark, you're being told, particularly if you're a services contractor, look, those prices on your current contract are too high. You have to lower them by X percent or we're gonna cancel your contract. And contractors are saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. How did we arrive at this? Because you, the contracting officer, had to make an affirmative price reasonableness decision when you awarded me the contract. You, you weren't gonna do that unless you did your due diligence. Uh, now all of a sudden, three years, four years down the road, you're telling me that my prices are too high. Uh, you know, that's not what I'm getting when I'm selling in the marketplace. 
I'm seeing a lot of competition there. Uh, so contractors are really kind of uh, protesting back to GSA uh, about what's going on here, and, and rightfully so. Look, uh, contracting officers have a role to play, IGs have a role to play, but the roles that each one play, Mark, are different. You don't want to be in a position where the inspector general becomes your effective co-program manager uh, because that's not your role. GSA is in a competitive uh, landscape. Uh, if you're a contractor and you feel like you can't make a good living off of your GSA schedule and you've got uh, a NASA SUB or a NITAC NIH contract that you can turn to, well, uh, you're probably going to go to one of those contracts if they represent a, a better overall deal for you. So, you know, GSA has to be a little bit careful in how they view pricing. It's to me a canard that schedule prices are too high. It's been around since I had hair, uh, Mark, which was a really long time ago. Uh, <laughs> And I, you know, it's time for the agency to stand up and uh, stand behind the pricing that its contracting officers negotiate. Yeah, I mean, when, when I start getting complaints from people and they know that I don't deal in schedule negotiations at all, then I know it's a big issue. And I, I'm getting this complaint on an extremely regular basis. And my answer, just like yours, is, well, you know, NITAC and NASA soup look really, really good now, don't they? <laughs> Didn't we talk about this before the last, you know, on-ramp or, uh, or recompete? Um, so, you know, look, look down the road a little bit, boys and girls. There are a couple alternatives, um, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of this move on the part of GSA at all. So, well, I, I'm hoping that you know we'll get a new. We have new leadership uh, coming into the agency. Uh, it's going to be a new day, and I just think you know GSA is going to do a good job communicating in one area. That it, hopefully they'd be a little bit more consistent across all areas. Well, I mean, you know, when they were doing the consolidation, it was it was. A, a good news scenario. We're going to make life easier for you because now you have one point of contact for all of your stuff, right? <clears throat> Nobody wants to say, hey, by, by the way, that one point of contact is going to beat the crap out of you on Martian. <laughs> <clears throat> um, you know, <laughs> so right. I, I want to wrap up this in, uh, in a very self-serving kind of way. Um, I've been in the business 35 years. You aren't far behind me. You have a, a different background. I mean, you were on the Hill as a procurement advisor to committees. You uh, ran the Coalition for Government Procurement for, what, 19 years? Um, right. And now you're out in, in, uh, in consulting land. But, you know, when I have uh, somebody call me and say, hey, I have this contract issue or I don't know uh, what this compliance thing means, I know I can send them to you. So um, very briefly outline what, what Allen Federal brings to the table. Well, Mark, that, I appreciate the opportunity. First and foremost, Allen Federal, we are not GSA scheduled contract uh, negotiators. We're not going to do your schedule for you. But I think the best thing to look at us in that vein is, we're the people that schedule consultants turn to when they get stuck. Uh, outside of that, we do a lot in government contract compliance. 
Uh, we do a lot in uh, advising people on how to set up contracts, what types of contracts to pursue. Uh, we do some market research for people on how to focus their government actions. Uh, we work with uh, attorneys on False Claims Act and audit matters, uh, things of that nature. So our goal is to help our clients make money, but also to save them money uh, so that they don't have to write the uh, they don't have to write checks back to the government. Right. All right. So uh, and and thank you for that. I just you know. I know that when I refer people to you, uh, usually the callback that I get from my client is, hey, thanks, he's great, he did all that and more. So what I bring to the table is advising companies on the marketing side of things, particularly social selling, uh, leveraging LinkedIn, developing a content marketing program, building that subject matter expert platform, and I have a year-long program that's designed just for small businesses that encompasses all of the above. Um, so if you're if you're looking for help out there, uh, you you you, uh, you might want to start with me and Larry. Um, and enough said on that. Well, so, Mark, I think that's a great thing. The only thing I would say in closing is look. When I teach my classes on government contracting, I have quotes from former CEOs of successful government contractors. Every last one of them says, this is not a do-it-yourself business. If you're getting new into the market and you can't figure out what it is you're supposed to do, there's a reason for that. And there's help out there uh, to get. And Mark Amtower and Larry Allen are two good places to go, depending on the type of help your company needs. But keep in mind, the people who live in bigger houses and drive nicer cars than I do have said publicly that government business success is not a go it alone uh, thing that you need to turn to people who've done it. Right. And the one thing you can count on from both of us is if we cannot help you, we will tell you, but we will aim you at somebody who can. Very true. Always happy to refer people. There you go. Larry. Thanks for joining me for my anniversary, dude. Uh, look for the party favors in the mail. The hat's coming. And uh, for those of you out there listening, thank you very much for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. There's a better way to drive traffic to your e-commerce store. Harness the power of AdRoll Dynamic Display Ads. Promote your products with interactive ads or showcase your best offers with an in-ad video. Not only is it easy for customers, you save money too. Dynamic Display Ads lower cost per conversion by 50% compared to static ads. See the difference. Visit AdRoll.com to get started today.